I think I told you before about a little girl who watched her parents all the way through December. And she watched them frantically uh, doing the shopping and uh, getting really upset at the long queues. She watched them wrapping presents and then panicking when they'd forgotten one. She watched her mom laboring over a hot stove day in, day out, trying to get all of the food ready. Uh, She watched as they snapped at each other and as they snapped at her. And after several days of living through this December, one night she knelt beside her bed to say her prayers, and she was overheard praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, Please forgive us our Christmases as we forgive those who Christmas against us. (laughs) And doesn't that so often happen in the rush and the stress of Christmas? Christmas becomes a stress rather than a time of rejoicing. The American pastor A.W. Tozer said that Christ came to bring peace. And we celebrate his coming by making peace impossible for six weeks of the year. Christmas really is billed as one of the biggest events of the year, isn't it? Our shops have been setting us up for this since the end of September. We're told over and over again how lovely Christmas is going to be. And while we're uh, busy negotiating the queues at the shops, we hear the Christmas music telling us that this is the most magical time of the year. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire, peace on earth and mercy mild. Have yourself a merry little Christmas, walking in a winter wonderland. Oh, I wish it could be Christmas every day, we are told. But I wonder how many of us, if we're really honest, when we sit back in a couple of weeks' time and we push back the chair from the table and we survey all of the damage, the wrapping paper lying everywhere, dishes lying in the sink, I wonder how many of us won't have a slight sense of disappointment and how many of us won't secretly think, was that it? All the preparation and the fuss and the hype, what was that it? For some of us, there there are more serious disappointments too. Uh, Maybe our disappointment has to do with grief, uh, that this year there'll be an empty place at the Christmas table. Perhaps our disappointment comes over financial worries, worry about whether we'll even have a job next year. Maybe there are family difficulties, maybe there's sickness. Well, This morning I want to speak about how to avoid disappointment at Christmas and how to increase our joy at Christmas. Because as I read through the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, who record Jesus' birth, that's one of the things that strikes me, is the number of times the word joy is used. I think of uh, Mary coming to visit Elizabeth, and we're told how baby John in the womb leaps for joy. Or think of Mary's song, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The angels announce to the shepherds good news that will cause great joy for all people. The overwhelming emotion that marked that first Christmas was joy. And what a contrast to Christmas in the 21st century. If you go to Canal Walk uh, this morning and see people trudging up and down through the shops, I can assure you that you might see worry and frustration and even anger. You probably won't see a great deal of joy. 
but it was joy that marked that first Christmas. As I said, there are at least six occurrences of the word joy in the, the account of that first Christmas. And we're going to look just at one of them in the story of the wise men. And if you've got a Bible with you, you might like to turn to Matthew 2, or we'll put it up on the screen as well. Verses that I'm sure you'll be familiar with. The Bible says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they'd seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I remember reading recently, someone asked the question, what would have happened if it had been three wise women instead of three wise men who went to Bethlehem? And uh, the writer, who I presume was a female, put it this way. If there'd been three wise women, they would have asked for directions. (laughs) They would have arrived on time. They would have helped deliver the baby. They would have cleaned the stable. They would have brought practical gifts. They would have made a casserole. Well, it wasn't three wise women, it was three wise men. Uh, Tradition has it that there were three of them simply because of the gifts that they brought. There may have been more. And as we've seen in this passage, one of the things that characterized their lives was joy. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. I think that in this passage, we see three things in their lives that might help us increase our joy this Christmas time. Firstly, I see in this passage that our level of joy at Christmas is directly related to what it is we seek. Our level of joy at Christmas is directly related to what it is we seek. I wonder what it is that we're looking for this Christmas. What will make us happy? Or what do we think will make us happy? Snow? (laughs) Having all the family together? A warm feeling that you would call the Christmas spirit. Uh, Giving just the right kind of present. Getting just the right kind of present. 
The, the problem with looking for those things is that they don't last. You know, sooner or later, someone is going to get upset on Christmas Day. A great aunt Maud will open up her present and everyone will see by the look on her face that this is not what she wanted. Or tiny Tim will throw a wobbly because he didn't get a handheld PlayStation. And yes, you can make excuses for him. He's tired. It's past his bedtime. He's only 36. <laughs> but the peace and the harmony of the day will be broken. <laughs> You know, on the 25th of December, people all over the world will lie to their family and their friends. Even right here this morning, there are good people who will lie to those they love the most. You don't believe me, do you? In two weeks' time, you will open up a gift in front of your family. You'll take off the wrapping paper and you will say these immortal words. It's just what I always wanted. <laughs> The fact of the matter is, not only is it not what you've always wanted, in many cases it'll be exactly what you didn't really want. And on the 26th of December, there will be shops packed with people trying to return boxes. That's why they call it Boxing Day. <laughs> trying, to, <laughs> trying to exchange their gifts for something that they really wanted. Now, either that or the gift will be hidden away in a cupboard somewhere to give to some poor, unfortunate family member next year. All of us are going to face disappointment this Christmas. But the problem isn't with Christmas. The problem is with what we seek. And I think we learn something in these verses. Have a look again at verse 1. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. The wise men were looking for Jesus. And not just looking for him, their aim was to come and worship him. And I wonder if that's our desire. I wonder if Christmas and worship are even linked together in our minds. I wonder if as we sing those carols, whether this is something that we do because we've been doing it for years or whether it really is an act of worship. Oh, come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Is it our desire to seek and to worship the Savior? Because there's a wonderful promise in Jeremiah 29 in the Old Testament where God promises his people and us, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I know this Christmas season isn't the easiest, and I know that Christmas Day can be quite busy as well. Many of you will be up at some unearthly hour, and you'll be preparing meals and getting last-minute presents wrapped. But I hope that somewhere, sometime, we'll take time to both seek and to worship Christ. You know, especially if you've got young children, at some point, sit down with them and read the Christmas story. Tell them we're celebrating Jesus' birthday. Our kids love birthdays. Sit around and sing, happy birthday, dear Jesus. Uh, do some age-appropriate activities that will place Christ firmly back in Christmas. There's a wonderful Christian movie, The Nativity Story, which is really great. Maybe if you get a chance in the next two weeks, watch it together as a family. Most of you will probably know the British pop star Cliff Richard. 
a couple of years ago, he released a new Christmas song called Savior's Day, and it reached the number one top of the top ten in the UK. Uh, and the song reflected something of Cliff Richard's Christian faith. And the chorus went like this. Open your eyes on Savior's Day. Don't look back or turn away. Life can be yours if you only stay. He is calling you, calling you on the Savior's Day. There was a teenage pop magazine that had an article uh, reflecting on the top, that year's top Christian songs. And when it came to this song, Savior's Day, the writer said this, This song is okay, but there's no holly, no mistletoe and wine, no presents around the tree, no snow, no Santa. In fact, this song hasn't got anything to do with Christmas at all. <laughs> So our level of joy this Christmas time is directly related to what we seek. And if our focus is on holly and mistletoe and wine and snow and Santa, we may have a problem. In Psalm 22, the psalmist looks back over the history of Israel and looks at God's faithfulness to them as a people. And he says this, In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. A few psalms later, he puts it this way. No one who hopes in you will ever be disappointed. And if we desire an experience of worship, if we desire a fresh glimpse of him who was born king of the Jews, if our goal this Christmas is to worship Jesus, then I doubt very seriously that we'll be disappointed with our experience. Secondly, not, not only is our level of joy related to what we seek, our level of joy at Christmas is directly related to where we look. Our level of joy is directed, directly related to where we look. So we can see in this story of the wise men that there are right places and wrong places to look for worship. So in verse 1, we read that the wise men go to Jerusalem. That was the natural place to look for a king, capital city, place of power and authority. But it was the wrong place. And when it comes to us actually looking for Jesus, there are right places to look and there are wrong places to look. One of the wrong places to look for Jesus is in the manger. Now, this Christmas, if you're looking for Jesus in the manger, you're possibly looking in the wrong place. I heard about a little girl who went with her mom to see the nativity scene uh, in the town center. It was an annual tradition. Each year they would go and look at the nativity scene. And this year, as they were on their way back, the little girl's mom asked her, did you enjoy that? And the little girl replied, yes. But there's one thing I don't understand. When is Jesus going to grow up? He's the same size as he was last year. <laughs> and that little girl perceptively noticed something that many people never get, that Jesus isn't simply a baby in a manger. He grew up. He grew up, and for three years he taught us about God and how to live in God's world, the most radical and countercultural lifestyle imaginable. Love your enemies. Give to those who ask of you. Pray for those who persecute you. He showed us that God is for sinners, for the oppressed, for those who feel unworthy, and very much against those who are proudly self-sufficient. And then after those three years, he died on a cross for the sin of the world. And there on the cross, Jesus paid in blood and death the debt that was owed by me and by you. 
That's a Jesus worth discovering. Not simply a baby in a manger who's cute, but has, that has very little to teach us. It's Jesus the man who can help us. There's a second wrong place to look for Jesus, and that's in our minds. Often you'll hear people saying, well, I always think of God as, and then they go on to give their particular picture of God. But that's a very dangerous place to look for God because we often create God in our own image, and we cut out the bits that we don't particularly like or that make us uncomfortable. C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia books, who was an atheist before becoming a Christian, put it this way. He said, we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as much as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, likes to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. I was sharing with the primetime people on Wednesday, Bill Hybels is a pastor in America, and he tells how one day he was having a conversation with a lady on an airplane, and the lady claimed to be a Christian, but during the course of the conversation it came out that, yes, she was sleeping with her boyfriend, and she was getting drunk on a Friday night, and she described how she was beginning to experiment with cocaine. And after a long time of talking, Bill Hybels asked this lady how she squared her behavior with God and what was in God's word. And this lady replied with this sentence, well, my God, my God isn't hung up on all of that. My God is more like a grandfather who just loves and accepts me. And Bill Hybels says he didn't make the comment at the time, but afterwards he thought to himself, you need a God like that. You need a God who will just love and accept you. Otherwise, you would be feeling terrible. It's much easier to change your view of God than to change your behavior. Instead of looking for God in the Bible and conforming my life to him, just change God. So that's a second wrong place to look, our idea of who Jesus should be. And the third wrong place to look for Jesus this Christmas would be in the faith of others. Often you hear people saying something like, my mom has a lot of faith, or my uncle is very religious. That's a bit like saying, I should be able to play the piano because my grandfather was a piano mover. (laughs) You can't just take on the faith of others. You need to find Jesus for yourself. So what is the right place? Let's have a look again from verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the chief, people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So the right place to look is in the scriptures themselves. I encourage you, read about this man, Jesus. Get hold of a Bible in a version that you understand and read it, all of it, not just the nice bits. Don't don't take anyone else's word for it. Check it out for yourself. this, This man, Jesus, claimed to be God. And really, all of human history revolves around him. Think how much he's changed our culture 
the American historian Yaroslav Pelikan wrote, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. It's from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It's by his name that millions curse and in his name that millions pray. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Jesus said, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And have I examined that for myself? Surely it's worth just checking out, just seeing if perhaps it might be true, just investigating. Actually, it's fascinating, this passage, that Herod knows the right place. This is a wicked man who cares nothing about the Messiah, but at least he has the sense to know where to look and to call the chief priests and ask them where in the Scriptures it says where the Messiah is to be born. And the sad thing is that there are many people like Herod today that deep down they know the truth, they're just too scared to look. One writer has pointed out that many people don't read the Bible, not because the Bible contradicts itself, but rather because it contradicts them. And so the right place to look for Jesus is in the Scriptures. There are right places and there are wrong places to look. And then thirdly and finally, not only is our level of joy related to what we seek and where we look, but our level of joy at Christmas is directly related to what we give. In verse 11, And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh, which were strange gifts for a baby. You might have thought the baby Jesus would have preferred a rocking horse or a teddy bear. <laughs> but the gifts were appropriate, as you know. The wise men gave gold, a gift for a king. They acknowledged that Jesus was and is king. They gave frankincense, which was used by the priests in the temple. They acknowledged that Jesus was a priest, the one who would bring us to God. And they gave myrrh, which was used to anoint a body before burial. And by giving it, they acknowledged that Jesus had come to die for the sin of the world. And I think that our level of joy at Christmas is related to how much we give. And I think that on some level, we know this. Uh, maybe it comes with age. Uh, as kids, it's definitely about getting, isn't it? And I heard about two boys who were spending a night at their grandparents' house the week before Christmas. And at bedtime, the two boys knelt by their bed to say their prayers, and the youngest boy began by shouting his prayers at the top of his voice, Dear Lord, I pray for a bicycle. Dear Lord, I pray for a skateboard. Dear Lord, I pray for a puppy. And his older brother stopped him and said, What are you doing, shouting? God's not deaf. And the little boy replied, No, but Grandma is. <clears throat> for, for children, Christmas is about getting. But as we get older, hopefully... <laughs> we realize that it's more about giving. And Jesus was the first one to point this out, in fact. In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul says in this, this in the context of giving. He says, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. 
Now, that may sound as if I'm buying into the consumerism and the materialism that so characterizes this time of year, but let me clarify. I'm not necessarily speaking about physical presence. Going to visit someone at an old age home, giving a gift to someone who might not necessarily get one, inviting a lonely person to come and share your Christmas dinner, I think we'll discover that our level of joy will be increased. I read a short piece by Pastor Charles Swindle a while back, which might be helpful for, uh, for us. He wrote this. Here are some gifts you can give this Christmas that are beyond monetary value. Mend a quarrel. Dismiss suspicion. Tell someone I love you. Give something away anonymously. Forgive someone who's treated you wrong. Turn away wrath with a soft answer. Visit someone in a nursing home. Apologize if you were wrong. Be especially kind to someone with whom you work. Give as God gave to you in Christ without obligation or announcement or reservation or hypocrisy. Those are priceless gifts and yet cost so little sometimes. And so just those three things this morning, that three ways to increase our joy this Christmas. Firstly, let's make sure that we're looking for Jesus. And if you don't know him yet, then come and chat to someone over coffee in a moment. Chat to the person who brought you to church or come and chat to me. I'd love to speak to you about what it means to have a relationship with him. But if we do know him, let's make sure that at Christmas we truly seek him and worship him. I guess not just at Christmas, but every day. Let's make sure, secondly, that we're looking in the right place. Let's commit ourselves to reading our Bibles and searching for Jesus for ourselves. And then thirdly and practically, let's make sure that we are mindful of the needs of others. Let's open ourselves to be used by God to meet those needs.